Good evening. Glad to have everyone here. Matt, I was wondering if you know something we don't know, because you thank the Lord for letting us come here one more time. So, so nothing, you don't have any, okay. <laughs> All right, just making sure, just making sure. Well, thank you all for being here tonight. I appreciate it. Um, and so our plan was, we talked about on Sunday, that our plan was to start tonight on a series um, that we are still going to start, but it's just not going to start tonight. Um, Bubba and Cease and his dad um, are going to help, are going to teach a series on uh, the priesthood of believers, that we are a royal priesthood. And what, what does that mean? Where do we see that connection from the Old Testament what it points to in the New Testament and beyond that into eternity. What does that mean that we are a, priest, a royal priesthood? Sometimes we can just skip over those kind of passages and not really understand them. And so that's what that series is going to be about, and they're going to, it's going to be really good. They're going to be teaching us about that, and I think it'll be uh, something that's well worth your while to come and be a part of. That will, we were going to do that tonight, but uh, we had to shift some things around. So I'll be filling in tonight. Um, next week, Bubba's going to come and do uh, a week on prophets and kings, and then on the, was it the 12th? 16th. 12th. Wednesday the 12th is when we'll start that new study. So I hope you will keep coming and return for that as well. Uh, so tonight, um, I'm just going to kind of fill in. So instead of, instead of starting a new book and then having to stop um, to go through the series that we're going to go through and then start again, um, I thought I would do something a little different tonight. Um, and I wanted to take a look at some Christian sayings or slogans that are not really Christian, or at least not in the way that they're used. Um, and these are things people say, thinking that they're Christian or that they're from the Bible, and really uh, they're not. And sometimes these can express things that are partially true. Uh, they might have a, a glimmer of truth in them, uh, but the way that they're used um, and under the circumstances that they're used, and in the context that they're used, they are not biblical. Um, and the problem is that the way these are used or applied to people's lives is not helpful. And it can lead to people believing things about themselves that isn't true, about God that isn't true, about salvation that isn't true. Um, and so we want to take a look at some of those things tonight. And you've, you might have heard some of these before. Maybe I've talked about them before. I don't know. Um, but I want to look at some of those sayings or slogans. These are things you might find on a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or you know, a, a devotional or in some interview with somebody, they might come out. Um, but we want to take these things wherever we see them or hear them, and we want to run them through the scriptural sifter and see if they're true or not. So I hope that, that tonight as we do this, it'll at least leave you with the thought, you know what, maybe some of the things that I've thought are true or biblical are not. Maybe I need to be careful about what I believe to be Christian just because of maybe who says it or that it sounds really good. There are some things that people say that are not biblical, but they sound really good, like they could be biblical, but are they? So we need to ask ourselves that question. So... I want to draw your attention to a passage of Scripture, first of all, in Acts 17 for a moment. Um, in Acts 17, in order to sort of set the stage for us to have the right attitude and motivation for what we're doing tonight. 
Um, and we know that when Paul and Silas were teaching in uh, the synagogue in Thessalonica, they're reasoning from the scriptures with the, with the Jews there. Um, and some, after their reasoning, some believed, some did not. Okay, These Jews did not take kindly to what these men were teaching. They found other men uh, to create an uproar against them in the city. One of the things the Jews acknowledged there in that passage, sort of the overall passage there, was that Paul and Silas and those like them teaching this same message about Christ had turned the world upside down. Okay, they, they, This message of the gospel has been turning the world upside down. The truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel was spreading. It was a major threat to anyone trying to maintain control of people through their religious ritualism. So the mob went to find Paul and Silas uh, where they had been staying at the house of a man named Jason, um, but they were not there. So they dragged Jason and some other men out to the city officials, and they're making accusations against them okay, along these lines that they are turning the world upside down. Uh, and this led, ultimately, to Paul and Silas being forced to leave the city of Thessalonica, um, and they went off to a town called Berea. So now in this town in Berea, there were also Jews in the synagogue, and Paul's custom when he went to a new city was to go to the synagogue and to do the same thing, to reason through the scriptures. Uh, but these Jews were different than the Jews in Thessalonica. Okay? And that's what I want us to notice and apply to our thinking about the things that we hear in our time as well. So let's read uh, a, a two-verse passage of scripture here in Acts 17, verses 10 and 11. Okay? Um, this is after they've left, or this is when they've left Thessalonica. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Just a couple of short verses there, but it really tells us something about these noble Jews, we're told. Or that they, didn't, they took what was being said, they were eager to hear what it was, but not just to take it and believe it without comparing it to the Word of God. And so that's what they wanted to do. And so we learn from them, this really should be our pattern. That when we're, when we're taught something, that we want to look at the Scriptures ourselves and compare it. And what a blessing we have in our day and age, that we all have a Bible in our hands and we can open it up and we can... We can test what we've heard and what is said, and we can learn, is it true or not? And if it is true biblically, then amen, we believe it, right? If it is not, cast it aside. We don't want to follow that. We don't want to teach that. So I wanted to just start with that passage of Scripture and have that be our kind of our mindset as we're going through this tonight. That's the kind of believers we want to be. Those are the kind of Christians we want to be. So before we get into this tonight, then I want to have a word of prayer. Uh, yes, question. That was Acts 17, verses 10 and 11. Yeah, thanks for asking. Let's have a word of prayer and ask God to help us tonight. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this evening. Thank you for all the kids and all the singing uh, that we can offer up to you, Lord, as, as praise. And now we thank you, Lord, for time to open your word, that we can offer this up to you as praise and worship as well, Lord, that you've given us your word, uh, which is truth, and you help us to understand it as truth through your Holy Spirit. We ask tonight, Lord, as we look at these things and look at your scriptures, that we would have right understanding about some things that are typically said 
that may or may not be Christian, may or may not be biblical. And so we ask for discernment, not only for tonight, Lord, but in our lives as Christians. Help us to be like the Bereans, Lord. Be careful with what is said and to compare it to your word because that is true. We can trust it always. Uh, thank you, Father, for the gift of your word. And we want to praise you and, and ask your help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let's get started with one of the most popular sayings that I've heard for most of my life, and I'm sure you have too, usually on TV, TV shows or maybe news interviews of Christians or something like that. Um, maybe you've seen it on T-shirts. It, it sounds like something that would be on a T-shirt. I don't know that I've ever seen it there. But So the first one I want to look at is, God helps those who help themselves. And how many of you have heard that before, at least, at least heard that, Okay. So the question then we as Christians have to ask ourselves, is that a biblical statement? No. You didn't even have to think about that one, did you? <laughs> no, it is not. It's not a biblical statement. Okay? Well, what does someone mean when they say that? By the way, I'm going to ask questions tonight and you know, have this be interactive too. Okay? What does someone mean when they say, God helps those who help themselves? Okay. Sure, give themselves permission to do what they're doing. Okay, so, so God can't or won't save you unless you do your part. Something like that. Um, get right with God and he will save you. Um, that, that seems right to people. It's, it kind of sounds like it could be right. God helps those who help themselves. That sounds nice. Uh, we want to be responsible, don't we? Um, so it seems right to people because... But that's because it's the system we work in as, as human beings, as men and women, right? Um, uh, you do for me, then I do for you. That's, that's kind of how we function. We expect something from others before we're going to do something for them. So, but why, why is this not a biblical statement? Why does that conflict with the message of the Bible? Works. Okay, works righteousness, works salvation, works-based salvation. Yeah, so we don't see in the scriptures where God uh, is, is waiting for man to do a certain thing or be a certain way um, because we can't. It's pretty simple, biblically speaking. We can't. And in terms of salvation, we really are helpless. Uh, we are not able to help ourselves. So that statement is very unbiblical uh, and dangerous, when we talk about helping ourselves here, we're talking about helping ourselves to be right with God. That's really the, the goal here of people saying this. It's about how do we get right with God or be made right with God. So let's do what the Bereans did. Let's look at the scriptures. And I wanted to go to Romans 8.3. If you want to turn to these with me, that's great. If you want to just write them down and look at them later, that's fine too. Romans 8.3 uh, says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, so here we see that um, this, this Paul is talking, talking about the law, and, and God has done, okay, we need to focus on that first. God has done, that's key, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, the law points out our sinfulness because as we look at the law, as we 
think I can do the law. We can't. It it's constantly proves over and over again, we cannot meet God's standard for righteousness. We are unable. Therefore, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, the flesh meaning us, our, our, our inability to, to do something to make ourselves right with God. So God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And he did so, how? By sending his son. Okay, not just to die on the cross, which he did, but he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus Christ came, he lived a sinless life, um, and, and that is extremely important and um, inseparable from the gospel message that Christ came and lived that sinless life um, because it's that sinless life that made him able to go to the cross as the perfect sinless lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf. So, key there is that God has done. Okay, That does away with this idea that I have, I'm doing a part here and then God will do his part. Yes. Perhaps, but there is um, quite a large aspect of this that goes to the idea of being right with God. Right, which is also important. Right, that's that those unbelievers are believing a false message about how to be right with God. Ultimately, it's always about being right with God. God helps those who help themselves. That means He's looking for me to do something. Then He will act. And so if that's the message, people are they're stuck in this cycle of um, doing works. How are they ever going to know if God is pleased with them or not? And there's no answer for that. Biblically, the answer is, he's not. <laughs> he's not pleased with you. You, you cannot please him. Um, so that's why we need a Savior. Um, so when we, when we can explain that to them, that'll help them get out of that false belief and into a true gospel belief. But I would agree with you that there are probably some who... Maybe, maybe they're not outright thinking when they say that, that they're talking about salvation, but ultimately that's what it always is going to shake down to is they're doing something, they think they're doing something to please God. And those things they're doing can't please God. Did you have a question back there? That's sad. It's, it's sad. I mean, sometimes we're tempted to... Right, right. Because who's, who's ever going to tell her that she's reached the mark? If she reads, reads the scriptures, she can see, or the person doing that can see they haven't reached the mark. In fact, they've fallen way short of it. They can't get there. That's the message they need so that they'll, they'll come and be there. Now, and that's not just about coming to church. I mean, that... Wherever they're at, when they come to the truth of that, they can't. They can fall on their knees wherever they're at and ask God to save them. So, yeah. Right, and so we see the 
the devastating effects of someone believing something like this. Now, maybe she wasn't going specifically by that statement, but the sort of the gist of it is in what she believed. So we can see how, how harmful that is. Charity, did you have a question back there? Right. If, if, if that was the measure that people were using, you look at the Apostle Paul and all the things he went through, and people would be saying, well, God helps those who help themselves. What's your problem? You, you must be doing something wrong. You're getting shipwrecked and beaten and thrown in prison, all these things. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, so it's really an, an, an untrue message. <laughs> uh, and, and Job, yeah. And especially when applied to the idea of salvation. It's... It's devastating. Um, a person can try to help themselves, and people do all the time. They try to help themselves. They will be unsuccessful, right? Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And there's passage after passage in Scripture we could look at. That the law of God merely exposes our helplessness in doing anything good. It shows us our need for a Savior, not that we can be our own Savior, or, or help our Savior in some fashion. We need the gift of his righteousness applied to us. That's what we need. Uh, Philippians 3.9, Paul has gone, gone through a, a list of all these earthly achievements and, and his qualifications and all these things, and then he's talking about how he's cast all that aside. And Philippians 3.9, he says, he's saying, and be found in him, he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a totally different message. All right, so, so how could we change this to be a more biblical or biblically accurate message? Not that we want to use that saying as a foundation or something like that, but if somebody wanted to make a saying out of that and change it to something more biblical, instead of saying God helps those who help themselves, what might you say? Okay, that's, that's a true statement. Right? I heard somebody put it this way and saying, God helps those who humble themselves. Right? And that's what, that's what a repentant sinner is doing, is humbling themselves before God. Um, not that we want to go around coming up with slogans. It's probably not a good idea. Better just to use Scripture. <laughs> but if you were going to make a slogan, it has to be better than that one. Um, so we can see that a statement can be made that sounds good or nice or true, but we have to ask ourselves, is it good or nice or true? Uh, when we go the Berean route, we can uh, come to a biblical conclusion and not believe what's false um, 
and as well as not be able to uh, uh, correct the erring person. That's part of the goal here is to be able to correct the erring person. Um, and one thing I want to mention here too is that we don't need to jump all over people who, who say these things. We don't, this is not an occasion to put someone down or to belittle someone. It's usually coming from someone who says they're a Christian and means well, right? Maybe they've been taught this or heard this, and it's, they're well-meaning, okay? So it's not about jumping on them or saying how terrible they are. Um, we should definitely not keep saying these things that are untrue or misleading biblically. Um, there are probably times when some of these can just be ignored, uh, where making a big deal out of it at the time is not what's best. Discernment is important, not only for seeing what is false, but for knowing how and when to correct it. Um, but the fact that someone, we have to know this too, the fact that someone means well doesn't mean um, that we can let it go if someone is being affected by it. We, we must correct that error. If someone who claims to be a Christian is being affected by something that is not true, we need to help that person to get out of that error. But none of this is in terms of, why are you so dumb? I mean, how could you believe that? You know, That's not what we're talking about here. Um, we can all be deceived. Um, by God's grace, we won't. Uh, so now as we continue to look at these, I want you to also look for um, a pattern that can be found in these. Okay? Look at the similarities in, in terms of what biblical doctrine or doctrines are under attack by these statements, these slogans or sayings. Um, we'll talk about that at the end. Okay, so the next one. We are all children of God. Is that a true biblical statement? Right? It, it's, a, it's, it's hard, right? It can be true depending on who you're talking about. Right. Typically, when that statement is made, well, let me just ask the question. Why or in what context do we normally find people saying this? What statement are they really making by saying, we are all God's children? Okay, could be that we're all saved. Anybody, any other thoughts on that? Why people say that or what context do we normally find people saying that? What's that? Okay, no one is better than another. I think that's fairly true here. And, and um, when we see these kinds of things being made, these kind of statements, or this particular statement being made, it's a lot of times around this idea that it doesn't matter what faith you hold or by what name you call God. We are all his children, right? Usually this is, it's uttered in conversations with people of different faiths, and uh, a call for unity is attached to it in some, in some form um, as God's children. And too often, Christian unity is based on feelings and man-made ideas and concepts that are made into pseudo-profound statements um, that people marvel at and believe to be true, and this could be one of those, that we're all God's children, um, and when they actually have no basis in Scripture— um, but people don't care to check because it sounds true, and it goes to something was said earlier that uh, it can sort of excuse a few things. I, I'm off the hook for a few things here. Um, for example, in, in his first video prayer back in January of 2016, 
um, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Pope Francis, he spoke to Catholics and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and Christians, all, he's speaking to all of them. And he said this, Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty that we have for all. And that is, we are all children of God. Yeah. There you go. That's right. And that's the point. Christians who are discerning Christians can hear something like that and come to that conclusion right away because you've read the Scriptures, you know the truth, and right away this red flag pops up. Hmm, that doesn't sound right. And then you can, you can think of the Scriptures that would apply to that, and there are many. Um, and again, this depends. To make that statement would depend on who the all in that statement are and who the God is. Um, the Pope says, no matter what religion they are in, including, of course, in that group of people, are those denying the biblical Jesus Christ and his deity. And so he's including them all and saying they are all God, all children of God. This is, that's the Pope's call to unity, that we can all be unified around that idea that we're all children of God. And essentially, does the Pope's teaching on that subject leave anyone out? It doesn't, it doesn't leave anyone out. Everyone is already in, right? Um, what false belief does this leave the Buddhists and the Muslim and the rest with? What are they left with? What kind of false belief are they left with? That they're okay, right? You're fine. Keep believing uh, what you're believing. Your religious practices have no, no negative impact on your eternity. Right, uh, but but it does. They are they're left with no message to repent uh, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're left in their sin, and we've gone over this many times. We can't do it too much, and and you already mentioned it, Mom. We're all created in the image of God. Okay, this is, this is a true biblical statement. We are all created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis one, God who created everything. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We got that straight. God created everything, everyone. And right away in Scripture we see a division of people into two camps, two families, so to speak. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see there the, the, the offspring of Satan and the offspring of God. We're looking at two, two separate things there. And ultimately, this is talking about Jesus' victory over Satan. But we see that Satan has offspring, those who belong to him. And um, I wanted to turn, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and looking at verses 1 through 3, and let's see what Paul wrote and what he said about this subject of who we are, whose children we are. Ephesians 2, starting verse 1, he's writing this letter to the Ephesian believers, okay? It says, and you 
were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All, everyone, that, that is the state of every human being without Christ. And that's any Christian, that's where you came from, right? Uh, that's where you were, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. In other words, all human beings since, since the fall are children of wrath. This is original sin. We all, by nature, are sinners and already lost. Jesus told the Jewish leaders, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. In John 8, 44. So what does the Bible really say? What message should the Pope have given? If he's going to give a message about that, what should he have given? Well, the Bible says we must become children of God. In John 1, 12, and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Romans 8, 14 through 16 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, adoption implies people were at one time not a child of that person, and then were made that person's child through the process of adoption. There was a, a transformation here, a change here. But we don't have to go by biblical implication only. right? The Bible makes clear... Um, has other clear statements like the one that we saw in John 1. In 1 John 3.10, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we can clearly see the Bible makes a distinction. Someone is out. Someone is not a child of God. And the question is, Who? Who is out? Well, everyone is out until they're brought in. Right? So, so we can't say that we are all children of God. That's not a true biblical statement. Um, the clear biblical teaching is that everyone is out. We have to be adopted as sons and daughters. We have to become children of God by our faith in Jesus Christ through the new birth, which is, again, an act of God. Okay? God's call, we, we talked about the Pope's call to unity. God's call to unity leaves everyone out who does not believe in the name of Jesus Christ and receive him. And there is a distinction here, and it's about true faith. Right? For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In Hebrews 4.2. Until any person is united by common faith in the biblical Jesus Christ, they are not children of God. So the unity that the Pope and others preaching this same message want 
sounds nice and, and inclusive and loving, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. <clears throat> but it is, in fact, impossible because it will always require a person to compromise the truth to accommodate others. If you're a Christian making that statement, it will always require you to compromise the truth to include others. And look, if you're still in Ephesians, you can flip over to chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. And listen to what this, this example of unity says. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, the Pope's unity is not the kind of unity that we want to talk about. And let's be straight about this. This is not an attack on the Pope as if he were the only one spreading this message. Right? This, this comes from Christian pulpits all the time. Um, every Sunday, because we're not discerning about what the Scriptures really say. But what do you think would be the overall driving motivation of people saying this to large groups of people, of, of mixed false religions? What is the driving, the overall driving motivation of people who make a statement like this? Okay, I mean, I think they think that, but what's their motivation for making this kind of statement? We're all the children of God in a group of people who don't believe <laughs> in God. Okay, yeah, the people want to go to heaven when they die, but the person saying it, why are they motivated to say this to that group? Okay, inclusion, unity, and ultimately what? What was the first part you said? Make friends and influence people. Yes. Okay. Ultimately, the answer I was looking for, which I think is, is mixed into all these, is fear of man. Fear of man. A desire to be liked and accepted. Okay. What does our world do right now to people that differ in thought from the, the culture? You are, you are a hater. You're, in fact, your differing opinion is violence itself. Right? So, the fear of man drives people to make statements like this. These are untrue statements. Uh, and it's a desire to be liked and accepted. And it's not just, this isn't just making a mistake. Right? These are sins in and of themselves. Luke 12, 4 and 5 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who's that? That's God. So we, we should not let our fear of man cause us to want to say things that are biblically untrue so that they'll like us or accept us or think we're tolerant. Biblical Christian unity has a focus, has a starting point, the Bible. Right? It, it cannot... 
be just anything to anyone because it has to be what the Bible says it is. That's what Christian unity is. It has to be what the Bible says it is. We can't just make up what we think Christian unity is. Uh, it's unity based on the word of the one true God. It's not based on a concept. Uh, this unity does not accept anything else as truth. This unity is initiated by and empowered by the Spirit of God. So God has given the church all that she needs to learn and grow and go in the right direction and be protected from spiritual harm and be in true biblical Christian unity. And it's a process, right? Through sanctification, we are all growing up in our salvation. We are being made more like Christ. And, and in that, we, unity is building, but only among those who are truly Christians, whose unity is found in a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the biblical Jesus Christ. We don't get to determine what Christian unity is. God defined it in his word, and that's why we subject statements like these to biblical scrutiny. Is it true? Is it not true? How has God defined biblical Christian unity? Well, we read in Ephesians that God, he does give it a definition, and specifically in verse 13 there, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is all about Christ. According to that verse, there are two things which are marks of biblical Christian unity. That, that unity is marked by the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? The faith. Not a faith. It's singular. The faith. Faith as described in the pages of Scripture with a focus on Christ. The knowledge of the Son of God is the other thing. Not knowledge of anything we want or of the Son of God of our own making, right? Not knowledge of man or of science or philosophy or, or all religions put together, but the knowledge of the Son of God. So long story short, not everyone is a child of God. That is not a Christian statement, and it's not biblical. So, got to be careful with those kinds of things. Any questions about that before we move on? All right, next one. Christians are not to judge others. Have you heard that one? Don't judge. You're not to judge. Is that true? I would say yes and no, right? <laughs> Depends. Yes and no. Uh, it, it is, it's one of the most common one of the most common verses blurted out to chastise Christians for calling out sinfulness, right? Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, okay? Then they just stop there. <laughs> um, the problem, as usual, is that the verse is taken out of context. It's applied wrongly, um, and if a person were to read the rest of that section, they would see that a certain kind of judgment is wrong, that a certain kind of judgment is expected. Okay, look, look at, if you want to look with me there at uh, Matthew 7, one through five. <clears throat> if we look there at verse two, right after talking about judge not that you be not judged, verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, 
when there's the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What does the end of verse 5 ultimately imply? Well, it says that, but what is, what is the implication by the end of verse 5 of, of the overall idea of judging or not judging? What is the implication? No. <laughs> it is that the person with the log, the person with the log, right, uh, is still going to make a judgment. It's not saying there's no judgment to be made. Right? It's, it's, there's, it's prohibiting a certain kind of judgment. It's prohibiting a hypocritical judgment. But righteous judgment is expected and needed to restore a brother or sister in Christ. Right? It says, you hypocrite, first, so there's a step here, take the log out of your own eye. Deal with yourself first. But it doesn't say, don't go back to deal with the other brother or sister. Right? It says, and then... You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the implication is, there's a speck in your brother's eye, there's a log in your eye. Get rid of that log, help your brother with the speck. So there's some judgment that needs to be made here. But don't be a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And what does this cause us to do? I mean, you talked about the one finger pointed and then the three pointed back, right? That's how your hand looks when you're pointing. You've got three of them pointed back at you. Um, but that, what should that cause in us then? If we're looking at it the way you're talking about, which is, which is true, um, it should cause or teach us, you know what, if I do see something in someone else, I need to do some self-reflection first, right? I need to, I need to check myself. Hypocritical judgment is, is this, Romans 2, 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's a hypocritical kind of judgment. In the Bible, we're clearly told to make judgments all the time. So, so this statement, don't judge, you can kind of just throw that out. as a, If it's just a blanket statement, don't judge, as in you are never permitted to judge, make a judgment about anything, that is not biblical. Right? We, we can clearly see in Scripture we're to judge. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay? How do we judge with right judgment? Well, Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, we, The only way I can know or make a righteous judgment is if I 
am in the Word of God, if I know the Word of God and what is true and what is not true, what is right and what is wrong, um, then I can make a righteous judgment about something. Uh, and that comes with practice. And that practice is studying the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, so that when I see this thing, I can make that judgment. Again, self-reflection first, but then I can make that judgment, biblically speaking, because I've been training my powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. Um, man, time's going by really fast. Uh, so I'm going to skip a couple things here. So anyway, there's clearly judgment going on in those verses. Um, Christians should be righteously judging other Christians. Why? To restore them. To restore them to walking in righteousness. It is our business. When a brother or sister in Christ is sinning or is, is not doing what's right, it is our business. Um, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And again, the goal, as always, when you're approaching someone else who may be in sin, right? Self-reflection first, but you're still going to approach them. The goal is restoration. Right? The goal is not, you're a terrible person. You're out of here. See you later. Uh, there's no hope for you. Right? Whatever it might be, some sort of, um, you know, holier-than-thou kind of thing, Right? No, the goal is, is humbly, gently, lovingly restoring this person with the truth. What you're doing is sinful. Right? You need to repent. And we can pretty quickly say that Christians should not, that the saying that Christians should not judge is not a true statement. Uh, it's not biblical and actually goes against the word of God. So if you find yourself thinking, ah, seeing a Christian in sin and saying, I have nothing to say to them or I shouldn't say anything to them, that's not true. Now, there is a right and wrong way to do it. So go to the scriptures and know what is the right way. How should I approach this brother or sister? Then you'll learn. Oh, I, need to be, I need to be patient with them. I need to be loving with them. I, I can't let this go. And I need to reflect, make sure I don't have a log in my own eye. But nonetheless, the sin needs to be dealt with. Um, fourth one. Jesus loves you just the way you are. Why do people usually say that? Is it? Does Jesus love you just the way you are? What, think about when this is usually said. What's the setting maybe where this would be said? Usually it's if someone is maybe down on themselves for their sin, right? Um, I'm a sinner... I know I'm a sinner, this is terrible, I'm a terrible person. Well, God loves you, Jesus loves you just the way you are. And leave it at that. Well, what are they left to believe then? Their sin is okay. It's not that big of a deal. Jesus loved me anyway. Yet, they're left in a place where their sin is not dealt with. They're left to think, oh, yeah, well, why, why wouldn't he love me? You know? Um, but they're left to be in their sin, to think their sin's not that big of a deal. And what's the big problem with that saying? Well, it makes people think they can continue to sin. I, I can continue in this route that I'm going uh, just as I am because Jesus will love me anyway. He'll, he'll save me anyway. And usually that's what people mean when they say, Jesus loves you just the way you are. When they're saying Jesus loves you, 
they're wrapping up everything. They're salvation, everything's wrapped up in that. But there's really no, no truth in that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you could make statements about sin and how bad sin is, but, but to say Jesus loves you just the way you are, if you're going to say anything like that, you would really need to qualify it with a lot of other things. Probably not good to just say it and leave it. I think that's the problem with that statement. Yeah. That's right. And that's where, that's where when you just stop there, you don't go far enough to talk about, no, the point is not to stay in your sin, right? Um, maybe they would try and use like Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that a verse in Scripture? Yeah. Is that true? Absolutely. But does that verse say he loves you just the way you are? No, it doesn't say that. Uh, it's really because of the way you are and despite the way you are, so as to change us. Not, not so that we can remain there. There's a transformation that needs to happen. Right? Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can't just stay sinning and think you're okay. Yeah, it's not tolerated, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and then the question is how, right? You know, okay, because if again you could leave, you're making a true statement, but if you leave it there, become holy as he is holy. Oh, well, I better go do all these things, right, to get holy. Uh, so again, there's more. You have to say more. You can't just throw out a slogan and and have it be believed as truth without some sort of context. And again, not that we want to come up with slogans, but what could we change that saying to that would be more biblically accurate? Well, first of all, it would be longer. Right? It'd have to be longer. <laughs> uh, it could be something like, Jesus loves you even though you're a sinner, and he died to pay for the fa- that fact and to transform you by giving you a new heart that hates the way you are in your sin and giving you eternal life through his own righteousness given to you through repentance and faith in Christ. Right? You, you'd have to add a lot more in there. If What? Well, you know, you wouldn't say it that fast, maybe. You know, and, and again, there would be some explanation around it. This is a conversation. Again, that's why throwing out slogans isn't, is not a goal here. If they're engaging because of a slogan, that's a great opportunity to say, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that slogan. Let me tell you what, what biblically is really true, and then you can say something like that, and if they have questions, and I would ask them, is that clear? Do you have, do you have questions about that or whatever? Explain it more. Don't just leave it at a slogan or a statement and say, see you later, hope you got that. Uh, it's the problem with 
with little pithy things we say. Uh, it, so it is, yeah, it's a mouthful. Um, so we, we can't just throw those things out there or the original slogan because they're not helpful. They're not true. And in fact, they're, they're damning. They leave someone in their sins. We don't want to do that. Well, I had another one. We're out of time, but I was going to talk about cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, <laughs> you've heard that one. <laughs> it's not really a biblical statement. But does God talk about being cleansed in Scripture? Anywhere? Yeah, all over Scripture, all throughout Scripture. He even gives all the terms, all the ways that you, in the Old Testament, to be clean and in the sacrificial system and all the uh, uh, ceremonial cleansing and all these things. You got to do this and do that. You're unclean. Now you got to burn this. And the person that touches the ashes is unclean and they got to be cleansed. And, and men and women with discharges, bodily fluids, those kind of things, they're unclean. And anyone that touches the thing they're sitting on is unclean. There's clean, constantly need this need to be clean, to be cleansed over and over and over again. And but when people say things like cleanliness is next to godliness and they just leave it there, there's sort of an error in there of if I clean myself, I'm good, right? I'm good, I'm good with God. Um, where the saying, I don't know that people have really narrowed it down. It's definitely been around for hundreds of years. There's been people that have uttered it but in different forms and said in different ways, but the way we've heard it or in that form, um, I think they trace back to the 1700s. Um, but we can see why it would have that connection to, uh, to the Old Testament, for sure. Um, and all of this is a result of sin, right? This need, constant need for cleansing. All the teaching throughout Scripture, all the things that God told them to do, do this, do this, and it's over and over and over, and it would never truly take care of the problem. It's all pointing to something else, right? It's all pointing to Christ. All these things associated with death and disease and impurity come from the fall. The picture is of sin and the need to be cleansed, but also that no matter how much a person washes, they cannot stay clean. They are never truly cleansed from the sin and impurity of the flesh. The Old Testament prophet uh, Ezekiel uh, makes this clear in regard to cleansing and who accomplishes that. He says in, in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's God doing that. God is doing the cleansing. And the fact that all the outward cleansing is useless is made clear in the New Testament as well. Uh, the Pharisees were astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner, talking about Jesus. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Where, where, where is the cleansing needed? The inside. 
Jesus also says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The thing to notice here, of course, is the necessity of internal cleansing. And like we saw above, God said, I will cleanse you. Even more powerfully shown by Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and what he said to Peter. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. John 13, 8. Why is that statement from Jesus so appalling to so many who profess to be Christians? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Why is that just galling? It's exclusive. Right? It, it leaves no room for another way. Such a powerful and convicting statement from Jesus And that is what we believe as Christians, that I must be washed by Jesus. It should actually be comforting to us that we we can put our whole eternity into his hands. He will take care of it by his own work. He washes. So, I had others, we're way out of time. Things like, I do my best, God does the rest. Take care of your life, and the Lord will take care of your death. What you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. These are bad. (laughs) I mean, that's that's blasphemy. Online. Yeah, you can see them on T-shirts and all over the place. Um, But that one there is, that's the one, you know, if someone's saying that, you want to, like, step aside. I don't want to be near that person right now. (laughs) God's going to strike them down. Uh, You know, James said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We don't give God anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything from us. God is the gift giver. The, The saying, what you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. Well, I'm a sinner. That's what I am. Apparently, that's God's gift to me. What I become is my gift to God. So what I do with my life, I'm doing it, and that's my gift to God. Here you go, God. And that's what the people in Matthew 7 are doing, right? They're standing before God with their gift to God. Didn't I do all this in your name and cast out devils in your name? And Well, we're out of time. I don't have time to... We're going to have to talk about this after. (laughs) So what you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. Where do we see in Scripture where we give a gift to God? We don't. What we become, speaking of us as Christians, what we become is all a work of God, not me. We are, that's right. That's right. Right. Any work of transformation in us is a work of God. 
We don't transform ourselves. We can't do good things. Um, everything that we become ultimately is through, through the sanctification of the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, that we can be, be more like Christ. Um, and we again, when Christ comes, we will be transformed again by Him, not by us. We don't give God a gift. Um, the implication in this is that, again, work. I have to become something to make myself a gift to God. Um, and that's not true. God gives us as a gift to his son. Um, we don't, God doesn't need us. We don't give him something that, in that way. And that's the implication there. Is God has made us, set us out there. Here's my gift to you of you. And now he's waiting for us to work to a point where we can be a gift to him. That's not, it's not good. So I, one thing I asked at the beginning was, there's a pattern, there's a common theme in a lot of these sayings, and asked what doctrine or doctrines do these statements attack, do you think? What's sort of a common theme of what gets attacked in terms of Christian doctrine? Easy believism, yeah. Free salvation. Yeah, ultimately, I think there, we could probably say several the one that pops out to me, I would say, is the doctrine of justification, how we're declared righteous before God, because many of these are about us doing things to be made righteous before God, and that's not biblical. So it attacks that doctrine of justification. We are, we are justified by our faith in Christ, by his death and his resurrection, um, it's, a, it's a God's declaration that we are righteous because we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ as a gift, not our own righteousness by obedience to the law or something like that. So uh, these, these kinds of things can be a real attack on true Christian doctrine. So again, not that we want to, when we hear them, go, ah, and freak out, but what is our relationship with that person who said that or believes that? Maybe we can sit and have a conversation with them and say, hey, that's not really biblical. Or what do you mean when you say that? Maybe, maybe they don't really believe it the way you think, and maybe if they clarify it, you can go, oh, yeah, okay. And maybe you could say, well, you might want to be careful because it sounded like you were saying this, and that's not biblical. So we can help each other by doing that. Any questions? Is there any one of those you guys haven't heard before? There was another one I had. <laughs> it's just the way God made me. Why do people say that? There you go. It's the big excuse. I, I mean, they've done something sinful and someone has called them out on it. And their response is, well, that's just the way God made me. Yeah. Well, no one says... This, when another person says, well, that was very kind of you. Well, that's just the way God made me. Right? We, do I think every man thinks what? No. I think a lot of people do. But again, it's an excuse. Right? If you're, if you're having to say that, it's because something has become evident to someone else. And they're saying something about it. So you have to say something in response, which is, well... It's just the way God made me. It's my, it's my way of saying, 
eh, I'm just going to keep doing it because that's who I am. That's how I am. Absolutely. Absolves them of personal responsibility. No responsibility or need for change in their life, which the change that they need is a new heart, right? It's God's, right? Sure. That statement just in itself, and another problem with it is it puts all the blame on God. This is how God made me. Uh, yeah, but we don't, we don't flip it. We don't say it when someone compliments us. You know, oh, you're so helpful. Oh, it's just the way God made me. Um, you could only really say that, make that statement, it's just the way God made me, or it's the way God made me. You could probably say it if someone said, and no one ever says this, you exist in the image of God. Well, that's just the way God made me. Well, it's true. God made you in his image. <laughs> but no one ever says that. So it's, again, something that we don't want to blame God for our sin. Right, and so when we find ourselves in a situation where maybe we would be tempted to utter those words, that's just the way God made me, what should we say instead? You're right, I've sinned. Will you forgive me? That's our response. That's, our, that's a Christian response. Not, that's just the way God made me. So, anyway, let's be discerning Christians like the Bereans, um, measure things that are said against the word of God. Are they true or are they not true? Are they biblical? And if not, get rid of them. Don't believe them. Um, they could be conversation starters. Because you see them on bumper stickers or T-shirts. And if you're maybe discipling someone, hey, you see that T-shirt? What do you think about that statement? And then you can get into a conversation about that and help Help someone who maybe is less mature in their faith to know, maybe I really should think about those things. I never really think about that. But maybe we'll go out from here tonight, and then you'll be looking around, you'll see bumper stickers and T-shirts, and you'll start thinking to yourself, huh, maybe I should check that out. I wonder if that's true. Right. There you go. That's right. That's right. Well, hopefully this was helpful tonight. And it's a little sidetrack, but um, I always find it fascinating. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of others we could talk about. Coexist and all those other kind of things, but we're out of time. So I'm going to close in prayer tonight and... Uh, and we don't even have time for Q&A, but I'll stick around if you guys want to talk about anything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this time to be together, and thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, that is truth. Thank you that we have it. Lord, we have it in our hands. Such easy access to your word, yet how often do we really go there? How often do we check the things we hear or read or believe or even say ourselves? How often do we check them against your word? Help us, Lord, to be careful. Help us to be discerning. If there are things we tend to say to people in certain circumstances, let's ask ourselves if it's true, if it's biblical or helpful. Lord, if it's not, then maybe we can get rid of it. Help us, Lord. Give us your word to say instead. When we are encouraging believers or calling believers out on sin or even doing some self-reflection on our own sin. Lord, may we use your word so that we know that what we're 
reading or believing is true. And let us apply it to our lives, and Lord, will you change us through your word and your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.